we'll get started here because we actually have a lot of great things to talk about and we want to leave a lot of time for you to talk about that with us. So uh, hopefully more people will wander in uh, as the session goes on. Uh, I'm John Herbst. I'm the president of the Indiana Historical Society. And our session today is getting it done, achieving and sustaining community change through diverse partnerships. And that pretty much covers a very long story and a story that's uh, continuing uh, for Indianapolis. The, the genesis of having this session about Indianapolis was the program committee when it met. Uh, had been People had been here several times in connection with planning ASLH being here. And they really felt that there was a, uh, they enjoyed the city so much and was fascinating to them on some level and they really thought there we should tell the story of how we brought a lot of diverse forces together to um, make a very dynamic city and a, a lot of forces came together to create what is a really remarkably vibrant uh, city center so um, like almost everywhere in the country since the time the program committee met here Indiana and Indianapolis have been hit as hard in some ways as any other place in the country. And so I think one of the things you're gonna hear from the panelists today, and we wanted to address this right from the beginning, is how do civic, how are civic advances sustained over time, especially looking at the protracted effects of this economic downturn. So this morning we wanna explore what type of partnerships are needed to accomplish community development what are the motivators to get different community segments to pull together and how do arts and culture and particularly our types of heritage organizations play a role in this and to that end we have assembled three um, what I, people I call amazing civic leaders for our panel uh, who have very unique vantage points uh, to discuss community building and have themselves contributed to this long process in, in notable ways. Uh, these are three to-go people if you want to get something done in Indianapolis. So I'm going to introduce them. Uh, so uh, immediately to my left is Jim Morris. And Jim um, right now is the president and CEO of the Pacers Sports and Entertainment Organization. Uh, I'm going to go back in time first to, and then bring, bring us up forward. Um, he spent some time as a bank executive, but then from 67 to 73, he was in the office of the mayor in the, for the city of Indianapolis to Mayor, now Senator uh, Richard Luger. Um, then he went to the Lilly Endowment which is a name you hear often on our, our lips in this town, the Blessed Lily Endowment. And uh, he spent from 84 to 89 there altogether, from 73 to 19, I'm sorry, he spent from 73 to 89 there, and he was the president from 84 to 88 of the Lily Endowment. And they, as you'll hear from our story, they had a lot to do with our successes. Uh, he was the president of the Indianapolis Water Company from 89 to 2002. And then he took a post um, with the World Food Program as executive director of that from 2002 to 2007. And there was a lot of concern in our city that we would lose uh, Jim and Jackie somehow, but this is their home and thankfully they 
considered it their home even while they were in Rome all that time and came back to us and now uh, Jim took on a, a very challenging job as the uh, head of the Pacers. So very happy to have him with us. Uh, next to him is Tamara Zahn and Tamara um, has stayed in the saddle of an organization called Indianapolis Downtown Inc., uh, where she has been the president and CEO. Um, she, uh, Tamara is, um, that is a not-for-profit organization that's strategically focused on developing, managing, and marketing downtown Indianapolis. And uh, Tamara helped to form IDI in 1993, and she's been instrumental in the revitalization of the of downtown Indianapolis, including the opening of Circle Center Mall, the introduction of a number of innovative security, parking, business improvement, and marketing programs. And under her watch, nearly $5 billion of development have been completed. And there are more than 60 projects, totaling $1.6 billion, that are underway including uh, 1,600 new downtown homes, and we have six cultural districts that have been brought online uh, during her time. And next to her is Brian Payne, and Brian is the president of the Central Indiana Community Foundation, CICF, and the Indianapolis Foundation. Uh, CICF is a result of a 1997 initiative between the Indianapolis Foundation serving Marion County since 1916 and the Legacy Fund Community Foundation serving Hamilton County, which is just to the north of us. That's where Connor Prairie is located. And um, so they, they kind of combined forces. Since he joined CICF in November 2000, the foundations have grown from $342 million to six, $675 million in total assets, although, Brian, maybe you'll give us an update on that today. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, uh, and the annual grant making ha had increased from $15 million to $40 million. But we are going to talk about the impact of everything on, on that type of uh, effect on the community. Under his direction, the CICF staff and board successfully implemented a five-year strategic plan that was crafted in 2002. This plan redefined the foundation's business model and created clarity and focus on how best to accomplish the foundation's mission to inspire, support, and practice philanthropy, leadership, and service in our community. Prior to his appointment, to CICF and Indianapolis Foundation. Brian was a managing director of the Indiana Repertory Theater, which you've been passing uh, as you come back and forth to downtown. It's a beautiful uh, building uh, on the uh, old movie theater. And uh, the IRT is our state's uh, resident professional theater and has a fantastic uh, reputation for the quality of its work. And uh, Brian and I were, on, uh, were in the consortium of arts and cultural CEOs together, and we were all very thrilled when they chose a not-for-profit professional to go and lead one of our major philanthropies. Um, i just say very briefly that one of the wonderful things that Brian visioned and has been actualizing is the Indianapolis Cultural Trail, uh, and he'll explain how that came about, but this is 
really a world-class urban greenway trail that will connect all six of the city's cultural districts, as well as the arts, cultural, heritage, sports, and entertainment facilities in the community. It's very, very exciting, and there's nothing like it anywhere else, and we'll hear about that later. Yes, please. Yes, I'm, I'm going to actually do that before we just introduce the topic a little bit more. So maybe uh, we can start over there. Yes. Super. Thank you. We're just going to start off with a, a, a definition by Jane Jacobs, who was the great urbanist and urban activist in the 20th century, who defined a livable city as it's generally understood to encompass those elements of home, neighborhood, metropolitan area that contribute to safety, economic opportunities, welfare, health, mobility, and recreation. And before we have Jim Morris kick off things from his vantage point, because he's really been around since the, really the days that they decided, let's do something about this. I'm just going to quote from a 1968 journalist who was visiting here covering the campaign of Robert F. Kennedy. And he said, were a Martian to land his flying saucer in Monument Circle, he might take one look, climb back in, and beat a fast retreat. Uh, and this was the time that we called this India No Place and Naptown, which was a very derogatory, and still kind of is a derogatory uh, term in how people felt about the city. So uh, Jim Morris is going to be up first.
Thank you, John. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Um, we all um, see this experience from our own uh, vantage point and from the way we participated in it. Uh, I had the good fortune in 19, late 1967 to be named Chief of Staff um, for Indianapolis, newly elected Indianapolis Mayor Dick Luger. Um, I was 24 at the time, and in my judgment, uh, John asked me to talk about um, what were the sort of the pivotal points that has moved, that have moved Indianapolis from where it was when the Martian might have landed and decided not to stay so long. Um, in 1967, there was a very vigorous fight in the Republican primary to choose a candidate for mayor. The old Republican Party, um, which had been in control for a long time, although we had had a long uh, run of Democrat mayors, all good people, um, not visionaries, but uh, traditional mayors, um, the Republicans, the party had put up a man who had been mayor 10, 15 years before. There was a group of, of wealthy, successful business people um, who said, this is not acceptable for our city, and we're going to change all of this through, um, through the Republican Party, and we're going to get rid of, we're, we're going to put new people in charge. And ultimately, Dick Luger won this primary election over a wonderful man by the name of Alex Clark. And Dick Luger, um, extraordinary man, actually, um, Rhodes Scholar, very, very bright businessman, um, has a farming interest, uh, humble, uh, inclusive, articulate, um, a special guy. So he, he's nominated by the Democrat Republicans. He beats the incumbent Democrat mayor in the fall by about 9,000 votes. Uh, no one in the world expected him to win, but he did. He had been on the school board in Indianapolis, and Indianapolis had this incredible reputation of not accepting federal funds. We, we, the mentality of the Chamber of Commerce was to accept no federal money, period. It went so far as to, um, as I think about this, I could actually talk about it all day, so I'll, um, my, uh, my discipline is, uh, is lacking. But um, Dick Luger comes on the school board and he says, no, no, this notion of not accepting money for school lunches is absurd. And he challenges the old Mossback uh, school board members. And he wins by four to three uh, to get 
IPS to accept school lunch money. Raises his profile. He does run for the president of the school board and loses, and that's why he gets involved in, in the mayor's race. But he, he becomes mayor, and um, he cares about all of the things that you would care about. But he, he's a man who would rather spend time with five students than five bank presidents. Uh, he had the symphony frequently in the office playing. Uh, he cared about history and the arts and sports and kids. Um, and he had a vision for the city that it could be extraordinary. Uh, in, in the middle of all this, Indianapolis was a city of 80 square miles. We're in Marion County, and Marion County has a geographical uh, area of 402 square miles. Luger says, you know, why don't we find a way to um, make Indianapolis the real city? And the real city was at least the county. And so um, in 1970, we go to the legislature. Um, one of the things, this uh, change in the Republican Party, it had produced six or eight really extraordinary legislative leaders in both the Senate and the House. And we suffer, uh, but are blessed to be the state capital, but we also suffer from envy and resentment and antagonism from the rest of the state uh, towards the big city. But Luger said, um, why don't we find a way for uh, us to enlarge the boundary of Indianapolis from 80 square miles to the what conceived uh, perceived to be the real city of 402 square miles. So we go to the legislature and we the legislature, in fact, like most places, sits as a gigantic city council for Indianapolis. Um, and ultimately, we prevailed by a very narrow margin. Um, and overnight, Indianapolis went from being the 30th largest city in the country to being the eighth largest city in the country. And we were sort of, uh, but we knew we were still the 30th media market. But uh, in the Almanac, we suddenly went ahead of Baltimore and San Diego. And th this experience, you could look at it two ways. It was either a consolidation, um, an inclusive effort to bring the whole community together, or you could say it was an effort to extend the political base uh, the county would have been more Republican than the old city, and by going, uh, making Indianapolis the full county, everybody in the county could vote for the mayor, and the chances of electing a Republican into the future were enhanced. Um, I, I managed the lobbying of this effort, and, and um, people looked at it two ways. Dick Luger looked at it at bringing the, the community together. And today we, we now struggle because the real Indianapolis is nine counties, not one. And uh, as Indianapolis prospers, um, it's very good for all of the suburban counties around us. And you know, sort of the age old challenge is how do you have a system so that 
those who benefit pay. And um, th that's um, a huge issue as it relates to sustainability. Uh, the perimeter of Indianapolis has had dynamic growth. And how do they help pay for the infrastructure and uh, the, the social fabric and the cultural life of Indianapolis, which is the reason most of the new businesses which ring our uh, community have, have come here. And if Indianapolis was a dead place, um, it, w it wouldn't be so good. So that's our challenge. So Luger comes into office, very inclusive man, um, moderate Republican, uh, reaches out to, to the Democrat community, uh, gets along very well with um, most Democrats. Republicans are energized, and he, he's a very vigorous young guy, uh, very articulate, begins to talk about a public-private partnership, uh, and people get excited about our future. The world is focused on Indianapolis because of this consolidation. Uh, there aren't many Republican mayors in the country. Uh, I don't want to dwell on this, but uh, Nixon uh, was president. And you know, the big headline in the Washington Post, uh, Dick Luger, Nixon's favorite mayor. Um, for a long time, that was a good thing. And it, it, um, it, um, because it benefited the city in, in this anti-federal aid mentality, we had refused to participate in the Model Cities program. Well, with the, uh, and this is, uh, but but quickly we became a member, a participant in the Model Cities program, and it, we were treated favorably, and dynamic things started to happen in our community. In the meantime, the Tax Reform Act comes along and says that uh, charitable foundations now must spend 5% of their principal as opposed to um, uh, just their earnings. Well, the Lilly Endowment, uh, created by the Lilly family in 1937, uh, Mr. Lilly, an extraordinary man, loved the Historical Society, um, an extraordinarily humble man, but he had persuaded his father and his brother to create the Lilly Endowment. And they set aside a big percentage of their family wealth to a point where the, the, the endowment controlled or owned 20% of the assets of the company. And, and over time, it grew to a point where it was the largest foundation in the world. Um, the, the, the stock market, um, it, it's no longer, but it's still among the largest. And it was a foundation that cared about its hometown, its home state, uh, religion, and um, education. But mostly education in the state of Indiana, although a huge commitment to black colleges across the country. Um, as it was suddenly required to spend huge amounts of money compared to what it had been doing. It, it was all over the map. Uh, but then the, the foundation, the endowment board, had a meeting and said, no, we're going to get a rope around this, and we're going to focus on Indianapolis. 
and but not to the exclusion of the religion work or the education work. And so suddenly, um, the Lilly Endowment started to play a very, in my judgment, positive, aggressive, um, vigorous role in the community. And with uh, the business business community, uh, we had 120 companies in Indianapolis contributing two to five percent of pre-tax profits. Um, we had an incredible partnership, government, um, business. We had a group of CEOs that met on a regular basis, a group of sort of second and third tier young people that met on a regular basis. And, and there was a consensus that Indianapolis should be focused on building a great university. Uh, we now have IUPUI, the strengths of both IU and Purdue, 30,000 students, the second largest medical school in the world, largest nursing school, uh, build it all right downtown, uh, remarkable. That we should focus on a great downtown, uh, Tamara will talk about that, but on the notion that the downtown is the one neighborhood that belongs to everybody, and Indianapolis is a city of 500 neighborhoods, and we come together, you know, life is a search for a sense of community. We come together in the downtown as, as one neighborhood. And that we should focus on young people. That if, uh, you know, a lot of folks have said that the great cities are judged, you can judge a great city by how it takes care of its kids. And if you do that well, everything else will come together. And we said, uh, those are our the three objectives. And then if, how are we going to get there? Well, we're, we're going to become a great cultural city. We're going to become a very significant center for sports and athletics and fitness. We're going to become a very important city as it relates to health and all that that opportunity offers. We're going to become a very important center of education and a very important center of food, agriculture, and nutrition and building on our strengths with IU 50 miles south, Purdue 50 miles north. We were the headquarters of the Amateur Athletic Union. Uh, we had this medical school that offered enormous potential, the extraordinary strength of Eli Lilly and company. And we, we, we set about that course of activity. And everybody generally was on the same page Everybody liked each other. Um, we hosted the Pan American Games, which was a common activity for 40,000 volunteers in our community. Um, the community made enormous investments in the art museum, the children's museum, a new zoo, the new Idol Jorg, the IRT, the symphony, um, really a remarkable cultural renaissance we built the most comprehensive set of athletic facilities anywhere. And in, in the process, uh, we get the Final Four. The NCAA moves its headquarters here from Kansas City. We get the Final Four every five years. We're now going to have the Super Bowl in 2012. Um, and extraordinary things happened. Um, our Riley Hospital for Children now has the ninth largest pediatric research budget in, in the country. 
and we've had a huge initiative related to the life sciences, et cetera. So in, in my judgment, um, the city is open, it's welcoming, there's a civic spirit, people work hard for the community, there's an unselfish mentality. We're hung, we've been hungry um, to be successful. And we, we didn't like being looked down upon by people in Louisville or Cincinnati or Columbus, Ohio. But now it's, it's, it's different. We compete very well with each of those. Um, and, and, you know, we would be one of the 10 most important cities in the country for conventions, the most important city in, in, in America for religious conventions, that we moved the Religious Conference Management Association to Indianapolis. Um, we had good mayors, both parties were the very good legislators. But now we're, we're 40 years into this, and we, we have enormous challenges. Um, I would say that we, we, the city has a dramatically different economic structure. Uh, we no longer have any banks headquartered here, any utilities headquartered here. We only have one insurance company. The newspaper is not home-owned. It's owned by Gannett. Um, the big grocery chain is owned by Sun Capital. And uh, the, the dynamics of our economic structure are very different. We've probably failed on public education. Uh, a major issue was a federal court order by Judge Dillon that uh, set up busing of inner city kids. Uh, when Jackie and I moved to Indianapolis, we had 137,000 students in IPS. Today we have 35,000 students. But the good news is the downtown housing is, 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 is strong. But it's a very different situation. We have the big state, our big city, rest of the state challenge. We have the challenge of neighborhoods versus the downtown. Um, and, the, you know, we're, we've reached beyond um, what a city our size. Our aspirations, our appetite has been uh, bigger than... Uh, and we, then we could easily sustain. And where at one time we had banks who could make decisions here and make multi-million dollar gifts to the cultural trailer, we don't have that. And the sustainability of all of this is extraordinary. We've had remarkable families. Um, the Ephraimson family that was uh, so good to the Indianapolis Foundation, uh, the Lilly family, the Simon family, and I could name a dozen more. They've been instrumental. But we've had good leadership. We, we've had this inferiority complex that has um, caused us to come together in, in a truly unselfish way um, to, to move ahead. And um, of course, the challenge is I'm 66. I don't know uh, how, how, I won't talk about how old Brian and, and Tamara are, but the, the challenge is for those who are 30 to 45 to 50 uh, to have the same drive that my generation had. We, we would have walked through that wall to, to do something to make the city better. And nobody did it for personal gain. And, you know, there's, it's so rewarding in life to be a part of a team, a group, 
um, that is focused on the common good uh, in common cause, inclusive to do extraordinary things. And, and I believe that's been the, the story of Indianapolis for the last uh, 40 years. And um, the, the, um, the sustainability and taking it to the next level is, is our challenge. And um, it's, an, it's an enormous challenge, um, but Brian and, and Tamara can talk about that. Um, thank you. Thank you, Jim. Does anybody have any questions for Mr. Morris before we get started? You can tell we're very fortunate in this community to have someone with this wisdom and generosity. Um, I'm going to just kind of pick up the story in the early 1990s and, and bring it to present day. Um, as John mentioned, uh, I am preside over a not-for-profit organization called Indianapolis Downtown Incorporated. And our entire focus is to make sure downtown is successful. As Jim mentioned, the vision was for a successful downtown. So we're um, kind of the strategic agenda setters, the uh, caretakers, the nurturers, all those things on a day-to-day -day basis that make sure downtown's operating um, successfully. More than anything, we are conveners and facilitators. And um, you know, as, jo as um, Jim mentioned, I think some of the building blocks that have really made Indianapolis unique, or we feel very fortunate about, is our elected officials. As we've had five mayors in 50 years, uh, beginning with Luger and then continuing on. And all of those mayors shared one belief. They understood the importance of a strong downtown, and they were committed to a strong downtown. They also were committed to a public-private partnership. And they knew how to engage and embrace and mobilize the corporate community. And our public-private partnership, it's one of the things that attracted me to Indianapolis. And we have groups all the time coming and talking about it. I sometimes think as, as Indianapolis residents, we take that for granted. We think everybody operates in that way. But uh, we know that that doesn't happen. And so I think really key to the success of what downtown and what Indianapolis has been able to approve, uh, in, improve is the ability for the public sector and the private sector to come together with a shared goal and make it happen. And that's very, very key. The component that's incredibly important, and the third component of that uh, stool is the charitable foundations. Lilly Endowment, as Jim mentioned, we are so lucky. They are one of the largest foundation, public foundations or private foundations in the country, but yet they believe in investing in their own front yard or backyard. And that has been an incredibly important uh, leg to our stool, if you will. And then the role of not-for-profits. I think Indianapolis is very unique in that the not-for-profit leadership is engaged and looked upon as an important um, group to also make sure change occurs. And I'm and as we move forward and as Jim described some of the challenges with our corporate infrastructure, I think the role of not-for-profit leadership is becoming more and more an important tool. Now the challenge is the resources don't follow that as as well as the corporate structure that Jim mentioned, but I think the the passion, the commitment and the collaboration um, is certainly going to be a key to our future. Um, some of the some of the successes of downtown, what I think is what has really made downtown work, um, is one the commitment. Uh, when we started in 1993, um, there was a lot of good infrastructure, but we were still faced with 
a city that was decaying in some ways. People, businesses were moving out of downtown. The department store had closed. Uh, we had like one restaurant, so at 5 o'clock at night, it was pretty quiet downtown. Um, and the civic leaders, um, Jim and others, said, you know, we look around and we see that, in, that all cities that are successful have a very good, vibrant downtown. They have a strong heart. So we need somebody that every day is going to worry about that. And thus IDI was formed. And um, to, just to bring together... You know, the first thing that people said is, you know, we like downtown, but we're not going to come if it doesn't feel safe to us and if we can't get there easily and park. You know, that, that four-letter parking word is always uh, predominant in our, our lives. And so we set about to build value for downtown so that people wanted to be there. There was a reason for people to use downtown on a regular basis. And I think that what's happened over the last uh, 15 years, at least under the time that I've been able to enjoy working with in downtown is, We've invested in a diverse strategy. You know, there's not one silver bullet that makes a successful downtown. Um, from time to time, you can kind of see the, the idea du jour. I mean, we went through aquariums. We went through festival marketplaces as a, as a country. We, you know, look for things to continue to invest in. But I think what, one of the things that Indianapolis has done well is we have a diverse strategy um, in, in terms of what makes downtown work. So it's a, it's, it continues to um, work on a number of levels. One, as a destination, about of the $6 billion that's been invested in the last 15, 20 years, 6 to $7 billion, about a third of that is uh, making Indianapolis a destination. Our infrastructure of hospitality, hotels, attractions, restaurants, et cetera, about a third of our infrastructure has been invested, or our uh, investment has been in corporate, uh, downtown as a business center, as an employment center. About 25% of that investment has been downtown as a medical and education component. And I hope you have a chance to get around in downtown and you'll see that Indiana University, Purdue University is about a quarter of our downtown. It dominates the whole northwest quadrant of downtown in partnership with the School of Medicine, as Jim mentioned, and Clarion Hospital, which has continually grown and um, is just such an important economic engine for downtown. And then residential. We have continually said downtown is an important neighborhood. People want to live downtown as the cultural amenities have increased. People want to be downtown. They love to go to the Pacer Games, walk to the restaurants, shop at City Market. So that's been a very um, good and very important part of our strategy because as you all know, if you don't have that 24-7 vitality, there's really no complete soul for a downtown. So that, that part is still very, very important. You know, one of the things that keeps me going is the solution-oriented manner in which downtown operates. And we are um, students of our, of our uh, leaders. And, you know, I was raised as a not-for-profit leader to stay focused on the common goal, put the agenda aside, and, and you know, keep at it. And that lesson is important, it's extremely important, it's very key to the success of Indianapolis, and probably what I worry about is, how do I continue to take those lessons that people like Jim and his peers taught me, and how do I share that with new leaders who are coming into the community that didn't have that ability to, to learn from the masters? And I, it makes a huge difference. I mean, I, every time we have a new CEO come in for a not-for-profit that wasn't trained in the way you work together, you make it happen, you, you know, you focus on the common good, 
it's a major difference. And so I think, again, how we perpetuate that legend of the partnership and the and the uh, setting aside agendas for Indianapolis will be one of our best opportunities, and I hope we can, um, can, it can succeed there. It's been very exciting to see the role that cultural amenities have played in our in our downtown. And I speak about downtown because that's where I spend you know 70 hours of my week. Um, there's plenty of examples throughout Indianapolis, but but I just wanted to speak of downtown. You know, we understand the importance of cultural amenities. It is what our corporations use when they recruit people, talent to Indianapolis. It, it's what keeps our young talent here in Indianapolis, whether it's the symphony, the children's museum, the art museum, all the wonderful historical society that John's created. So culture is important to us. And we have a number of occasions where our cultural institutions are very key in the role that they play in community development. John, for example, um, the Historical Society was a key leader in our cultural district program. We had created um, six, identified and, and helped to nurture six cultural districts where there's a, a collective mass of cultural amenities. And in the Canal and White River State Park area, um, we had a number of institutions, State Museum, Idle Jorg, the zoo, but the History Center really was a leader in helping to convene, take an active role, provide not only leadership, but the day-to-day -day get it done. And for institutions, that was very challenging for institutions because people were so busy on their internal uh, focus that to have to lend the time and resources to work outside their door was just something that I kind of watched the institution struggle with. But John's group was a real leader in that, and that has been something that I think has continued to make the canal uh, continue to emerge as an important destination for downtown. There's other examples. The Children's Museum is just a, a real leader in their neighborhood. They're a couple miles north of downtown at 30th Street. They've committed to that location, but what they've realized is our customer, when they come to the museum, their experience starts when they get to the neighborhood. And so we can be investing in tremendous exhibits and be doing all kinds of things inside our doors, but if our neighbor, if our uh, families with strollers and moms coming with kids don't feel like they're safe from the time they uh, come within six blocks and are walking to the museum, we will fail. So they have created a neighborhood redevelopment task force that is completely committed to making sure that their neighborhood is continuing to grow. And it's a hard process. It's, but it's been a, but it's, they recognize it as a necessary process. And it's been interesting to watch. I'm sure you can all relate to the, the, the internal discussions, board members, staff members, in terms of missions and how does the exterior and the interior, uh, how do we make them so that they, they work together? And that's, that's been a, a wonderful uh, opportunity to watch. And I think Indianapolis is very lucky to have that. Same thing with the symphony. Very good partners understand, again, that their customer experience starts outside the door. The more they're engaged in the community and part of the solution, the more it works for everybody. So we, I feel very lucky about that. You know, we do have challenges ahead. The economy has certainly um, knocked the wind out of, of about everything we're doing. But I think the important thing, I mean, I, I'm an optimist. It's, it's why I keep going for after this amount of time. I think it's a, we have an opportunity here. We have about $2 billion and 70 projects that are still announced and under construction and will be coming on downtown in the next five years. 
As Jim mentioned, we have a Final Four in April. We have a women's Final Four. And those are wonderful times when the community comes together and works to be the greatest host they can. We're going to raise our game a little bit in 2012 when we host the Super Bowl. And so we're, um, we've got plenty of, not plenty of time, the, time's, the, the, the clock is ticking, but we're committed to show that our community is going to embrace the Super Bowl in a way no other community has done that. And one of the things that we're doing as part of our bid is we committed we, as a community, committed to not only being the greatest host for Super Bowl week, which we know we will be able to do and, and just wow people, but we also committed to leaving a legacy in community development. So the east side of, of Indianapolis, just adjacent to downtown, is one of our uh, communities that's most under siege. Uh, low income, security, just, you know, it's, it's community development challenges at its worst. And so what the legacy of the Super Bowl will be will to, in the next few years, really focus attention to bring that neighborhood along. And there's a group of committees that's working, there's a goal, there's a vision, and it's very, very exciting. And I am I know when it's 2012, February, um, that that east side is going to have so many successes to show and the, the bar will be increased so much more because again, as a community, we have set our sights on a future and we're working together and it's exciting and it uh, creates its own momentum. So I will um, pause there because Brian has a fabulous story to tell in terms of what he's been able to do in this community by creating a big idea and trying to mobilize the community to that. So uh, thank you and, and welcome to Indianapolis. It's great to have all of you here. Thank you, Tamara. And um, every time I hear Jim speak uh, about anything, I always learn a lot and learn some history I didn't know today. So this has already paid off for me. And I hope it's paying off for you. Um, so I run the Community Foundation. Uh, the Central Indiana Community Foundation is the 20th largest community foundation in the country. The Indianapolis Foundation, which really created CICF, uh, is one of the 10 oldest community foundations in the world, along with the Boston Foundation and Chicago and Pittsburgh. And uh, in fact, uh, actually, California Community Foundation uh, was created in 1915 as well. But uh, Cleveland was the very first one in 1914. And it was really the Midwest that, that kind of adapted this really early. Uh, you know, we have a reputation in the Midwest as not being early adapters to new ideas. But in community foundations, we were, and we're proud of that. When I first got the job uh, as the Community Foundation president um, in 2000, and, uh, and, and actually my good friend John uh, hosted a celebration of all of our arts colleagues because uh, everyone was shocked that this community would actually let someone who had an arts background uh, have a key to that much uh, money. Uh, and, uh, and I really believe that somehow I got the job not because of my arts background, but in spite of my arts background. But um, one of the first things that I uh, listened to was a speech by a gentleman, another really important leader in Indianapolis and still today, John Mutz, who was actually Jim's successor. Jim, he was your direct successor at, at Lilly Endowment as president, wasn't he? And um, John talked about, uh, he was gone from Lilly Endowment at that time, but uh, talked about how the future that we're going to be, this is in 2000, that we're going to see a change in leadership, John thought. We're going to see a change from corporate leadership 
to really where foundation leaders need to step up and all the not-for-profit leaders need to step up. And John was saying this because not only in, in Indianapolis, but throughout the country, but maybe especially in, in Indianapolis, we were, we were seeing huge changes in the corporate landscape, as, as Jim talked about. Uh, we were seeing our, our major companies uh, be um, bought out by larger companies in other cities. Uh, we've had uh, that happen a lot, but so is Chicago, so is Seattle. Most Actually, most cities have fewer corporate headquarters today because of this continual consolidation in the corporate world. And John really was saying that foundations need to step up. Now, when, when Jim, of course, was the president of Lilly Endowment, they were a very activist uh, leadership organization. They took an activist role that really transformed the city. Uh, they continue to do that under John Mutz's leadership. Today, the Culture of Lilly Endowment, it's uh, a wonderful organization. Um, but I would say the people in this community don't see it taking the leadership having the same leadership orientation. They try to, they'd like to be a little quieter, a little bit more behind the scenes. Um, and there's always a debate about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, but John Metz called for not-for-profit leaders and, and, and especially foundation leaders to step up. That was, had a big influence on me. When I, I perceived the community foundation, I had a very dynamic, uh, very smart, intelligent, dynamic predecessor at the foundation who left the job that I have now to run the, uh, the YMCA at a national level. But the foundation's board and as a whole saw its role as a facilitator, as a convener. And that's still an important role we play today. But I felt that the foundation had a unique perspective, had unique resources, a unique, unique set of relationships and connectivity, and that it was our job not just to bring people together and hear their ideas, very important to do that. But also, it's OK that we had our own ideas about how Indianapolis should move forward. So we've taken that position. A little bit more about leadership um, and, and our challenges are um, you know, through Jim. And Jim is widely perceived as the architect um, of the great things that happened, the, you know, the lead architect with a lot of team, a big team guy, but a lead architect of what's happened in Indianapolis over the last 40 years. And what's happened now is, in my um, perception, my opinion, is that we just don't have, we don't have the, the corporate leadership world has changed. We are still a city because of that history that's looking for our corporate leaders to show us the next way. We do have a few really great dynamic corporate leaders. The present CEO of Eli Lilly and Company, John Lechleiter, is very focused on Indianapolis and very involved. Uh, we have uh, Ann Mertlow, who runs our, uh, our Indianapolis Power and Light Company, which is owned by AES. But Ann's been here for six or seven years now and is very committed and very involved. So we do have a few really dynamic, focused corporate leaders. But we have some, a lot much fewer. And then many corporate leaders are focused on what's going on in the rest of the world. I mean, we just got turned down by a major corporation um, for the cultural trail. Um, WellPoint, we just got the word that our, we, we thought we should get a, a million dollars from WellPoint for this cultural trail project. We asked for a half a million because we were told we weren't gonna get a million. And then we were told now that they basically needed to spread the money around to the, their other corporate, you know, they have offices and in operations in 15 other states. They felt like they'd given too much money. We don't quite fit their um, ne very narrow 
programmatic. Uh, the fact that it was a capital project really doesn't interest them. And this connects their headquarters to their operations center. You know, th and Jim mentioned this, but you know, uh, ten years ago, no way that WellPoint would have not given a million dollars to the Cultural Trail. First of all, their colleagues, which we did rally their colleagues to speak to the CEO of WellPoint, would not have allowed them not giving. There would have been, the fact that John Lechleiter has led the way and has made the ask, no one would have turned that down. So it's a different world that we're living in. It's a world in which I think we are very well prepared in Indianapolis with visionary, very smart, very well respected not-for-profit leaders. But there's a problem, there's two problems. One is even though they're well respected, the community has a history and a tradition and an expectation that it's going to be the big corporate leaders that will be really needing to lead the way and the not-for-profit leaders can play a nice secondary role. And so there's, we don't, not-for-profit leaders still don't have the prestige to lead. They have, the, they have the vision, they have the expertise, they have the focus, they have the talent, they don't have the prestige and the money. And, uh, and then the second, that was my second point, they don't quite have the money. We've actually thought about, um, could we, um, we've actually talked about what if our foundation gave five visionary not-for-profit leaders $100,000 to give away to community, basically being their bank account, so now they have the money. Um, but, uh, so we're working on that. Um, but then there's also some not-for-profit leaders who have all those char great characteristics who see their role as limited to only their organization. So they, care, they know about the community, they care about the community, but they aren't willing quite to step up, and, um, and that's been disappointing too. So we're in this moment of cultural change on leadership, and, and uh, there's a bit of a vacuum, um, and, and, and I'm, I'm concerned about that. Um, community foundations, um, we, I think we are a little bit ahead of the curve, but now community foundations in Boston was way ahead of the curve as well. Um, there's about five of us who really stepped up before the rest of the field and said, you know, we have to lead. We can't just convene, we have to lead, and we have to take, you know, plant a, a flag in the sand and say this is what we're going to rally around. The whole field has adopted that now. The whole field has realized, and with the economic downturn, it's, it's uh, expedited this, but the whole field of community foundations it realizes in the 21st century, being a grant maker, being a facilitator of, uh, of donor advised funds is not going to get you where you need to be and is not going to get your communities where you need to be. So the whole field of community foundations has now taken community leadership on. In fact, there's a, um, a big in, uh, institute through community foundations or council of foundations called CF Leads, Community Foundation Leads. And so there's this major focus. In fact, I'm going to be speaking at the national conference on this. And if you're a community foundation that's not leading in your, in your um, community, you're going to be an outlier and you're going to be disrespected by the field in the next five years. So that gives all of you a chance to partner with your community foundations. And pretty much, I would have guessed, there's 700 of them in the country. You probably, probably all of you have a community foundation. And if they're not leading, if they're not partnering in leadership, uh, they will be in the next five years, or they're going to be irrelevant. Um, one of our frames, one of the challenges of a community foundation is that we have way too much opportunity. 
I mean, when I was running an arts organization, the biggest challenge is we never had enough money. We never, you know, revenue was 100, you know, I used to say I shouldn't be called the managing director of the, uh, of the theater, I should be called managing director of chasing revenue. That's pretty much what my job became. And, but in community foundations, the challenge and the, the, the blessing is your life isn't, um, your, your daily life is not defined by limitations, as it too often is running an arts organization. It's really that uh, the great thing is that your life is completely open to opportunities. But that's challenging as well. You have too many choices. It's, and um, so we've been trying to frame our work. And one of our frames is how do we capitalize on all this incredible stuff that's happened in the last 40 years that still too many people don't know about? I mean, we don't have a bad reputation in Indianapolis, but we still don't have much of a reputation nationally in Indianapolis. People, you know, and, and the fact that we always constantly, constantly exceeds people's mediocre uh, expectations when they come here is uh, is not a big joy for me. Um, you know, when you get when you learn that your um, your conference uh, this year, your convention this year was going to be in Indianapolis, you know. We, we need to get to the point where you say, oh my gosh, I've been waiting to go to Indianapolis for years, thank God, it's gonna, it's fine. my time has finally come, people were paying me to go to Indianapolis, and I'm so excited. And we believe that we, that day will come. And it's important that it comes, because um, we believe at CICF that for any city in the 21st century to really thrive, and especially for Indianapolis, is we have to be a top 10 city of choice. And whether some brilliant person graduates from Harvard or Stanford, and when someone asks them, gosh, you know, you just graduated from Harvard, you can go anywhere in the world. Do you know that you can go anywhere in the world to create your life now in the 21st century? And they're from Harvard, so they probably know that. But they would say, and they say, so where are you, what are you thinking? And, and, and in America, they'll say, well, in America, I'm thinking about Seattle and Portland. I'm thinking about San Francisco and San Diego. I'm thinking about... Denver and Austin. I'm thinking about Chicago and Indianapolis. I'm thinking about staying in Boston or maybe going to Charlotte or New York. We have to be on that list a certain high percentage number of times or we're going to lose the war on talent. If we lose the war on talent, we're going to lose Eli Lilly and company and we're going to lose our bio, our life uh, sciences initiative because that's all about who gets the best and the brightest and puts them in an environment in which they can do their best work. That's what the cultural trail is about. The cultural trail is about many things, but for me, the number one thing that it's about is to change the way people think about Indianapolis or don't think about Indianapolis and do something, something so big and bold and transformative that actually comes completely out um, holistically from all the work that these three have done and many others have done in the last 40 years by connecting people in a dynamic, beautiful way, in a by creating a greenway trail, a bicycle and pedestrian pathway that connects every arts, heritage, um, sports, entertainment, cultural venue and facility in our downtown that connects the six cultural districts, that connects the entire greenway trail system, that connects visitors and residents um, to everything that is great about Indianapolis in a way that they've never connected to it before, in, in a way in which the journey is every bit as inspiring as all of the destinations, in a way that is bigger, bolder, and more beautiful than any other urban pedestrian or greenway trail project in the world, and the way that we think that a city becomes 
you know, one of the cities of choice is that you do something bigger or better that's really cool, something that really people, that everyone cares about, and you do it first or you do it best. And the cultural trail is both of that. So it's this eight-mile urban greenway trail. It has a high level of design. It's taking lanes away from cars and giving them to people, to bicycles and pedestrians and people in wheelchairs and rollerbladers and joggers and seg Segway enthusiasts. And it connects everything that you'd want to connect to throughout Indianapolis. Um, we think that's going to put Indianapolis on the map. We think it's going to make Indianapolis a top 10 city of choice, and that's what we need to be to thrive in the 21st century. The Community Foundation is leading that along with the city. It's gotten great support from 20 other not-for-profit organizations. It's got great support from some corporate leaders who are our fundraising uh, colleagues. And uh, we've raised $42.5 million out of the $55 million that we need. If you got to the north, kind of mid to north part of downtown, you'd see it. It's on Alabama Street, which is about six blocks east. We have a half mile done. We have two miles under construction. And like everything else in the city, our goal is to be done by the Super Bowl in 2012. So that's a kind of a deadline goal for everybody. So that's a community foundation idea. We've been enhanced greatly through lots, hundreds, if not thousands, hundreds of conversations. And historians can play such a powerful role in community leadership. I mean, what I've learned from Jim today uh, that I didn't know about the history is going to help me be a better leader in the future. So you guys have a magical piece of uh, power in your communities that uh, you need to you know, hold on to and share strategically and own the power of that tool because uh, everything that's dependent upon success in a community is dependent upon the culture of that community and that cultural of that community is completely defined by its history. And so you guys have a very special role to play. So with that, I'll stop.